Does manual treasury management and operations have your crypto business stuck in the slow lane? Scale up and speed ahead with Fireblocks, the number one platform for crypto operations and trading pros that makes custody, settlement, and rebalancing quick and easy. Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, an integrated solution that provides institutional investors with an advanced trading platform, secure custody, and prime services to manage all of their crypto assets in one place. Futuristic companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy have used Coinbase's comprehensive investing platform to execute some of the largest trades in the industry. Learn more by visiting coinbase.com prime to get started today. Eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust, Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting Chainalysis.com now. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block, and we have a very exciting episode for you folks today. On the other side of the mic is my guest, David Wu. He's got more energy in real life than I anticipated, so you're in for a treat. If you don't know who Mr. Wu is, he's a former top Wall Street strategist and economist and the creator of David Wu Unbound. We've got a lot to dive into from whether or not the Wall Street banks are behind on crypto to my egregious mistake on Twitter today. And then, of course, all of the macro news that we've been closely following here at The Block. David, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I want to get into your thoughts on how Wall Street is kind of asleep at the wheel when it comes to crypto. You were obviously the head of global strategy at Barclays and head of global rates, Forex and economic research at Bank of America. So you have a lot of Wall Street under your belt. And I think you were an early advocate for Bitcoin back in 2013. But as I alluded to, made a pretty boneheaded mistake, ladies and gentlemen. You know, this is rare, but I too will on occasion become the victim of fake news out there in the Twitter sphere. I saw someone had tweeted that the White House was going to give a round of stimulus checks and I fell for it. It was fake news. But maybe we can talk about if I was closer with you, David, and you were someone I uh, talked to on a more regular basis, you probably would have pointed out very quickly that that was erroneous. I mean, Frank, I think that's a very interesting thing. I think the last 10 years, People, and I'm not just talking about Wall Street, right? Like everybody has got used to the idea that, you know what, whenever there's a little bit of economic slowdown, that policymaker is going to come in pouring money on the economy, that stimulus is something that you just do as a fact of life. I think that's wrong. And I'll tell you why it's wrong. I mean, there is something very, very fundamental about the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution basically says, that the United States president is a pretty powerful guy. He can make a lot of decisions when it comes to foreign policy. But when it comes to money, 
the president has absolutely no power whatsoever. In fact, the founding fathers basically gave the purse string of the government completely to Congress. The president cannot spend $1 without Congress saying, go ahead. So from that point of view, given that right now we're looking at 50-50 in the Senate, and it's very clear the senator from West Virginia does not want to spend one more dollar than is absolutely necessary, there is no way as much as Biden is going to be out there begging Congress for another round of stimulus, there is no way you're going to see a cent coming through between now and the election. They probably would have liked to, though, if you think about the way that the Biden administration has handled COVID like a demand shock when COVID was actually a supply shock. I think you're right. I mean, there's no doubt that Biden will love to get some money, <laughs> okay, from Congress to go out and spend it on American households to keep things going. I mean, like, who doesn't, right? I mean, especially any incumbent president who wants to help his party get elected in the midterm is want to spend money. That's the most obvious to do this. But right now, the Republicans have exactly the opposite incentive. They want the economy to do as poorly as possible between now and the midterm so they can say, basically, the president has done a lousy job as far as the economy is concerned. And right now, given that we've got basically Joe Manchin voting with the Republicans, the Democrats do not have a majority in the Senate, even with the vice president's vote. And this is why I think the chance you're going to get any fiscal stimulus this year, I would argue, is less than zero. In fact, we're seeing some fiscal tightening <laughs> because the child care credits expire in January. So we're going to see fiscal tightening this year, not to mention monetary tightening this year. To think that there's any stimulus coming is people who are long in the stock market, wants to believe that there is going to be another fire engine coming to basically rescue the stock market. There's nothing coming. <laughs> it's interesting because Goldman Sachs this morning put out a note to clients noting that the reduction of fiscal support is actually one of the largest headwinds to consumer spending growth. That's exactly right. There's no question about that. I mean, this is why the Biden administration, I think, really played their card very poorly. Because if you recall, they want to push through the social spending plan. And I think that Joe Manchin would have compromised if they had contemplated a more modest plan, which would have helped them, I think, when it came to the midterm election. But the Democrats were so unwilling to contemplate anything smaller than this gigantic bill that would represent another massive addition to the deficit, mm -hmm. that the whole thing just basically died. So I would argue, in the end, if the Democrats get crushed in the midterm this year, they only have themselves to blame. Because I do think that Manchin, being a Democrat, does want to compromise. He just doesn't want to go out there and do a big check, you know. So there's a lot to unpack here on the macro side, on the domestic policy side, but I want to go to crypto real quick, then we can get to some of those topics. Do you think Wall Street overall is behind on crypto? I think Wall Street, there's no doubt, I think Wall Street has been behind lots of things in the last two or three years. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I left Wall Street, because I realized the world was changing much faster than Wall Street. And I think the reason is very simple. And I think even going beyond crypto, right? We know the last two years, retail investors have become a major driving force in the stock market. There's no doubt. I mean, thanks to social media, whether it's Reddit, whatever, individual investors who on their own, they're too small to really move the market, 
somehow social media provided them with a forum to coordinate their attacks on the market, okay? And that made them so much more powerful. And there is no question, I think Wall Street, still until this very day, don't understand this phenomenon of basically the Reddit traders, okay? And then the Reddit traders became very powerful, not just in individual stocks, like, you know, whatever, the main stocks, but actually over the last two years, they became a major force in terms of driving the major indices higher, lower. And one of the reasons I left Wall Street is because I want to create a meeting place between Main Street and Wall Street. Because Wall Street has no clue about Main Street. And honestly, Main Street has no clue about Wall Street either. So I want to basically help facilitate this dialogue to help educate both sides about each other. Because in the end, I think it will be helpful. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, we've seen the retail phenomenon pull back to an extent. That's been evident, not just in the price of liquid tokens drawing down, but also Kathy Wood's ARK and the once high-flying tech growth stocks. Do you think that illustrates the degree to which retail has pulled back or some of these other macro forces? I think you just raised a very important point. And this ties in with Bitcoin, right? Because this is what I want to talk about today. Because we see here, we say, well, what is Bitcoin? People like Bitcoin because there's this perception that the supply is fixed, as opposed to fiat money where the supply is infinite, right? We think that Bitcoin has something to do with the love affair with tech, right? Mm -hmm. So the question is, how does Bitcoin really trade? Because honestly, as a strategist, I mean, you know, having worked on Wall Street for 20 years, looking at rates, currency, stocks, you know what? The first question I ask myself is, how is this stock trading? How is this bond trading? With what is it trading with? Okay. So the question we have to ask yourself, first of all, what is Bitcoin trading with? What are the macro variables? You know, because in many ways, Bitcoin is a macro asset, right? Just like currencies, macro asset, U.S. Treasuries, government bonds have macro asset. Bitcoin is a macro asset, like gold. Now, I was just running a very simple rolling window correlation for you because I want to just throw in some numbers in the discussion. So if you look at the correlation of Bitcoin with the three, four things that we think, you know, Bitcoin ought to be correlated with, should be driven by. One is obviously inflation expectation. So if you look at the correlation between Bitcoin weekly performance versus the weekly change in, let's just say, the 10-year inflation break-even of inflation index bonds in the U.S., which is a very good proxy of inflation expectation in the market, you get a more or less a positive correlation, which is a good thing, right? It's a positive correlation about 40% over the last 20 months, which tells you that, yeah, when inflation expectation is going up, Bitcoin is doing pretty well because people realize that inflation is a monetary phenomenon and Bitcoin is benefiting from the fact that there's a fixed supply there. Now, if you then look at the correlation between Bitcoin and U.S. dollar, you also see what you would expect, which is about a negative correlation, about 20%, which is like when the dollar goes down, you know what? Bitcoin usually does pretty well. Not a very strong correlation, minus 20%, but it's the right sign. This is important. Now, the third asset, which brings us to the assets that Bitcoin's really been trading with lately, it's obviously NASDAQ 100, mm -hmm. right? Bitcoin right now has a 70% correlation with NASDAQ 100. So if you ask me, if you look at gold, gold doesn't have a positive correlation with NASDAQ 100. So from that point of view, Bitcoin is like a zebra or like a bat. It doesn't belong to the bird kingdom, nor does it really quite belong to the animal kingdom. It's somewhere in between. Now, 
this is actually very important. So it's, it has a positive correlation with inflation, negative correlation with the dollar, and positive correlation with NASDAQ. <laughs> and by the way, this is the reason why Bitcoin did so well in 2020 and 2021. Because think about that environment. That was an environment in which the Fed was printing money like mad. So the dollar was going down. And Bitcoin did very well. And because inflation expectation was recovering, that was good for Bitcoin because people worry about inflation. Bitcoin did very well. That was also the environment in which tech did extremely well. So all three factors basically together drove Bitcoin prices to the roof. Okay. So that's the kind of regime you need for Bitcoin to do well, which is the Fed is printing money, the dollar is going down, inflation expectation is rising, and basically NASDAQ is going through the roof. Now, I would argue, we are now turning. Now, NASDAQ's not doing well. Inflation, people expect it to continue to inch higher. And the other element is the, the dollar. dollar. Now, this is where it gets very interesting. Because which way inflation expectations go is going to depend on what the Fed does now, right? Because at the end of the day, you know what? You say, oh, well, what is a hawkish Fed? What's a dovish Fed? At the end of the day, you know what? When inflation is going up and the Fed says, oh, well, that's a good thing. That's the time you go out and buy your Bitcoin. When the inflation is going up and the Fed say, oh, shit, we're in trouble. We got to do something about this. This is when you should consider selling your Bitcoin. We're now at a point that inflation is at 8%. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Even Biden understands if inflation is anywhere near 8%, when the midterm election rolls around, like the Democrats are going to get absolutely destroyed. This is why basically the Federal Reserve has been given a free hand by the president to do whatever it takes. This is why the Fed told us last week they're going to be hiking 25 basis points at every single meeting this year. And then already next meeting, they're going to start to unwind their balance sheet. This is despite the fact that nine members of the FOMC voting members all think the risk to the economy is to the downside this year. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, this is unheard of. This is the reason why NASDAQ is doing so poorly, right? These are growth companies. Growth companies means, by definition, their earnings are in the far-flung future. When interest rates are very low, you know what? When you convert these far-flung earnings to today's term, it's worth a lot of money. But when interest rates are going up, these companies are not worth the paper their name is written on. And this is what's happening. So in some sense, this is the biggest story. Yeah, inflation is going up, but that is no longer good for Bitcoin because it's no longer good for tech stocks. Okay, And tech stocks right now are still by far the most important driver of Bitcoin at this point. There's no question about it. So it's tech stocks, then inflation. Exactly. Tech stocks, then inflation, then the dollar. So let's look at inflation just for a second, because I think it's something that is on everyone's mind. You go to fill up the tank and you can see it right there in the price of gas. Let's unpack exactly what's behind inflation, because there's a lot of different undergirding factors that are playing into it, right? Some people at the beginning of the year attributed it to the now waning Omicron and COVID pandemic. There's also issues in the supply chain. And then later we saw the Russian-Ukraine conflict enter the fold. And then, of course, many people who have been pounding the table on inflation for years will point to 
the aggressive money printing we saw throughout the COVID pandemic, the money printing that I think you would argue went far above and beyond what was necessary for the economy at the time. Is that how you would delineate some of the things behind inflation? Are some things overemphasized and underemphasized? And as the Fed acts, right, because they need to act, how do you anticipate inflation moving in the medium term? I think, first of all, let's just think about this slightly from a longer term perspective. You know, if you think about the last 30 years, it's been an incredible ride for the global economy, incredible prosperity, a lot of which I think has to do with three things. Number one, the IT revolution, which raised productivity worldwide. Two, the end of Cold War number one, right, with Russia in 1991, Berlin Wall came down and there was massive peace dividend that was produced from that. And the third factor, of course, was 10 years later, China's entry into the World Trade Organization, which really brought about globalization. Right? All these three forces, if you think about this, the IT revolution, China WTO, and the end of Cold War, they were all disinflationary phenomena. They were all based on what I would call positive supply shock, right? And then the fact that they happened in a space of like 25 years, that's like massive. This is the reason why central bankers have had it's so easy the last 25 years because like inflation was coming down. All they had to do was just cut interest rates. They didn't have any dilemma they had to basically pontificate about. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is in the space of 48 months, okay, we've just been hit by two negative supply shocks. We haven't even seen one negative supply shock, let alone two. I mean, we're talking about the last 30 years, right? The first was obviously, you know, COVID, mm -hmm. right? Everybody knows there was a massive shock to global supply chain. And basically prices went through the roof because of disruption, supply, deliveries, so on and so forth. The second, of course, is what's happening right now between Russia and Ukraine to the extent that, once again, you're seeing the same stuff, <laughs> okay? You like to think about this. One of the biggest shortage under COVID was semiconductors, right? Because you couldn't get the parts from China because of the lockdown zones. Now you've got the same problem. Ukraine and Russia together produce about 60% of neon gas, which is a massively critical ingredient for the production of semiconductors. I can tell you within the next week, you will start to get news that semiconductor manufacturers are running out of neon gas. So we're probably going to see once again a shortage of semiconductors, which will have rippled effect from autos all the way to basically making cell phones. Okay, that's how dependent we are on this whole thing, right? So we've been hit by two negative supply shocks. The bigger question that we all want to know is, are these permanent supply shocks mm -hmm. or they're temporary supply shocks, right? I mean, if they're, if they're temporary, then you know what? They're going to blow over. The question is, temporary or not? I think the day was temporary, was permanent. For some people, their time horizon is only one month. Some people's horizon is five years. My horizon is usually around three to six months, okay? Mm -hmm. I can tell you for the next three to six months, these two negative supply shocks are not going away. And I'll tell you why. It's very simple. First of all, now you say, okay, fine. The whole world has more or less recovered from COVID, right? I mean, number of cases been falling worldwide, so on and so forth. Except where? Except in China. Mm -hmm. I've always said, you know what? Omicron is going to claim China as its biggest victim. And the reason is very simple. I think China's had it easy in terms of dealing with COVID until now. I mean, think about this. Even though COVID came from China, the reality was that the Wuhan strand 
was far less severe and far less contagious than the alpha variant that started to spread to the whole world after it landed in Europe. So China was able to relatively easily dealt with whatever that they had to deal with in February 2020. The rest of the world had a really, really hard time. Now, I would argue that Omicron is the nemesis of the zero tolerance policy for Beijing. Because it's obvious, right? What happens is that you've got a zero tolerance policy, but you're now dealing with a variant that's literally 500% more transmissible than whatever you dealt with two years ago. If you're going to deal with this, you're going to have to lock down the whole entire country. You're talking about 1.4 billion people who don't really have natural immunity to basically speak of. Now, all of a sudden, they're going to have to get used to living with this thing. Now, what I'm just telling you is it's only basically last week. Shenzhen, which is the manufacturing hub of China, they shut down the whole city for a whole entire week, all the factories, everything. Now, I think that's just the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Because you're talking about 1.4 billion people against this highly transmissible virus. I would say that there's going to be a lot more shutdown, bottleneck, supply chain disruption in the next six months until most of this 1.4 billion people has acquired some kind of immunity against it. So this is basically the main thing. The second thing has to do with the Ukraine war, which I want to talk about separately because this is a massive issue. I think the market completely misunderstands it. Yeah, we could definitely dig into that. So there's the supply side shock of China having to grapple with Omicron over the next three to six months. That will continue to play into the inflation story. Ukraine, Russia, which we'll get into the granularities of in a second, will continue to as well. Also, I imagine you'd expect that the fiscal reaction and the monetary reaction throughout COVID has also played a role in that inflation story? Yeah, listen, I think there is no doubt. I personally thought that the massive fiscal stimulus that was unleashed by Biden back in February 2021 was not just unnecessary, was truly a mistake. Mm -hmm. I think Jenna Yellen is going to go into history book as like the worst secretary of U.S. Treasury ever for even advocating it. Because already, just think about it this way, right? You know, the beginning of 2001, we were already coming out of the slowdown. Vaccines were widely available. The truth is the economy was coming out. Mm -hmm. We also know back then that saving rate in the U.S. was at an extremely high level, in fact, all-time high, which meant that if Americans were not spending then, was not because they didn't have any money, was because, you know what, they didn't have anything to spend on because every computers or whatever cell phone they could have bought at home, they would have done it. Right? Yeah. They were serving it for whatever it is. Yeah. So when the government decided to send everybody another check, that was overstimulating the economy. In fact, the net result was that it created excess demand that drove up prices and inflation to unbelievable levels. So I would argue that was a case in point, a really, really bad policy. I mean, in the sense that, you know what? I understand the Democrats got back into power. The first thing they want to do is basically dish out some money <laughs> to thank the voters for having put them into basically office. But that turned out to be a huge mistake because in the end, if you think about the increase in inflation, more than eroded any of the actual check people got. That was the crazy thing. 
So basically, inflation was already a problem, and they were pouring fat on the fire. And then yet, Jenna Yellen was telling us, if you remember early last year, oh, well, inflation is transitory and all that. I want to hear this woman saying, you know what? I made a mistake. What is incredible to me is she's one of the few Secretary of the U.S. Treasury who actually has a PhD in economics. She was previously a former chairman of the Federal Reserve. She ought to know better. And then she ought to be at least honest enough to say, you know what? I screwed up. Yeah. How come I don't hear that? And now, of course, Biden's blaming Putin. Biden is now saying it's Putin. <laughs> it is to an extent, to your point, Putin is playing a role. Maybe not before when everyone was talking about it being transitory. So now let's look at what's expected to happen, right? Fed officials are becoming increasingly willing to raise rates above estimates that we expected. This can go into the second half of 2023. Correct me if you think I'm wrong. And we could see a 50 basis point hike at some point. I mean, that is certainly on the table. And if this all transpires, there are people that are now sounding the alarm on the impact it'll have on GDP growth and whether it might usher in a recession. I mean, listen, I personally think there is a 60% chance that we'll be in a recession before the end of this year. That's my view. And by the way, I just want to say this. My view, however, is strongly predicated on what I think is going to be the outcome of the Ukraine-Russia war. And I think, by the way, I don't care like whether you're a Bitcoin investor, whether you're an equity investor, a bond investor. At this point, the only game in town is the Russia-Ukraine war. I mean, just think about last week, right? I mean, last week was a great example. You know, like on Wednesday, Zelensky came out and said, oh, well, you know what? There's room for compromise. The Russian foreign minister came out and said there's room for compromise. And the stock market just ripped. Yeah. Right? Oil price fell second week in a row. Last week, the worst performing sector within S&P was energy, right? Everybody thought, oh, well, you know, the war is going to be over soon. Sell energy. And guess what? The best performing sector, of course, was <laughs> consumer discretionary, right? People say, oh, well, energy price go down. American consumer is going to go and buy some more iPhone. And then and Nasdaq basically went through the roof. And then guess what? The Bitcoin basically jumped as well. That was the story. So last week, I would argue, like we had a 6% rally in the global stock market, 8% rally in Nasdaq 100. The last time we saw such a big gain, by the way, was the week immediately after Biden got elected, <laughs> the way when the uncertainty of the election was complete behind us. Yeah. Now, I think it was a completely a dead cat bounce. But, but just give you a sense to what extent the market is now driven by this one thing called the Ukraine Russia war, when most investors in the United States don't can't even put Ukraine on the map if they have to, <laughs> right? Yeah. And yet the whole entire market is now being held hostage by this geopolitical event that's playing out, which in my view is extremely important. It's in fact pivotal. It will have long-term massive profound implications for all markets. Having trouble keeping pace with the crypto boom? When your business is scaling up and your portfolio is growing, you don't want to waste precious time on manual treasury management or settling and rebalancing. Fireblocks can handle that for you with smart, scalable solutions for your crypto business, along with industry-leading security and expertise. They'll take care of the back end so you can focus on the big picture 
Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, an integrated solution that provides institutional investors with an advanced trading platform, secure custody, and Prime services to manage all their crypto assets in one place. Coinbase Prime fully integrates crypto trading and custody on a single platform and gives clients the best all-in pricing in their network using their proprietary smart order router and algorithmic execution. Futuristic companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy have already used Coinbase's comprehensive investing platform to execute some of the largest trades in the industry. Build a unified investment portfolio with one of the most trusted names in crypto. Learn more by visiting coinbase.com prime to get started today. Are you eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust? Chainalysis is here to help. Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Gain unparalleled visibility and maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting Chainalysis.com now. It seems like the markets went from being gripped to the COVID crisis to now Ukraine, Russia. How do you see that playing out in the best case scenario for markets? I think what the market wants to believe in, which is what they've been fed by the mainstream media, right? I think the message from the mainstream media is that the Ukrainians are fighting like heroes and the Russians are fighting like amateurs. That, I think, has been very much the theme that has been telegraphed in the mainstream media, which is, oh, wow, Putin wished he had gotten to Kiev in three days, and now we're four weeks into the war, he's still basically bogged down here and bogged down there, right? That might be a derivative of the fact that people really did not expect the Ukrainians to fend off Putin to the extent that they have, that Putin somehow and the Russian forces would be stronger than they are. Why can he use this? In Swinton's Art of War, I mean, this is a text that's, you know, more than 2,000 years old, right? I mean, this is the Bible of warfare. The first sentence is, the most important aspect of warfare is deception. There is no doubt that there is a disinformation war being fought alongside the kinetic war. Mm -hmm. And that disinformation war is being staged by both sides, by the way. <laughs> okay? And I can tell you, Right now, the only perspective the Western media, therefore American mainstream guys, are getting is basically the Ukrainian side of the story. Sure. Okay. And I can tell you the Ukrainians have a very strong incentive to let you think that the war is going very well because nobody wants to back a loser, right? U.S. Congress last week just signed off on another $14 billion of aid to Ukraine. You said before that they could have sent that money to every American, by the way, to boost the economy instead of sending it to Ukraine. Do you think they would have sent it if they thought Ukraine was losing the war? <laughs> no way. So what I'm just telling you, the narrative in the market right now is the Ukrainians are fighting like heroes, that the Russians are getting bogged down. Another narrative is what you heard yesterday from Boris Johnson, right, the prime minister of the UK, which is that Putin's public support is collapsing 
that very soon we could see a coup in Russia that will even affect the regime change. So what I'm telling you is this. If the Russians suffer a huge defeat in Ukraine, are forced to withdraw, or that Putin somehow is replaced in a regime change, that will be hugely market positive. Mm -hmm. And that is, by the way, the story that our media wants you to basically believe. And that's why the stock market wants to jump on any piece of good news, such as, you know, what happened last week, a sign that this war is about to be over. You know, investing, you know, as an analyst, right? My job is to read through <laughs> the disinformation, right? Yeah. To read through the disinformation is hard because you don't know what's really going on, right? Because there's information on both sides. I mean, one of my claims to fame on Wall Street is I use game theory in a very prominent way to actually understand whenever there are conflicts of any sort. <laughs> okay. Game theory is, of course, is the analysis of strategic interaction among multiple players. The great thing about game theories is that there are no good guys and bad guys. There are no Mother Teresa and there is no Adolf Hitler. There are only good players and bad players. What I'm simply assuming when I think about a situation like this is that all the players are rational, they're selfish, and they are calculating. Now, when you start to basically with that vantage point, as opposed to thinking, oh, Putin is a butcher, a dictator, whatever, you might actually arrive at a very different conclusion, which is what I have. And this is what makes me so extremely pessimistic about the global economy, because I think that the war is going to get much worse. Because Putin is a rational actor, despite the fact that a lot of people view him as being this irrational actor. You know, there's a concept in philosophy called Oaken's Razor, which basically says, you know what? We should prefer explanations that require fewer assumptions than complex explanations that require lots of assumptions, right? Sure. You know, at this point to say, oh, well, Putin is crazy, you know, that he's sick, he's dying, all these conspiracy theories, you know what? There's no way to basically prove one way or the other. However, you got to look at his action and say, are they consistent with a sane and calculating person? And I would say, absolutely. I have a different question, though. I'm more struggling with the rationality of Zelensky. And I'll try to explain to you what I mean by that. Putin has been amassing his troops on the Ukrainian border for about a year. It started last March, by the way. It's been going on for a whole year before he invaded Ukraine. For a whole year, he said he does not want to see Ukraine becoming a NATO member. Okay? That's what he said. You know what? My life's experience has taught me that more often than not, people actually mean what they say. <laughs> okay? But he's been saying that for a whole year. By the way, you know who else has been saying this? Kissinger. Kissinger, back in 2014, said that he thought that neutrality for Ukraine is the easiest solution to the problem. Many, many of America's leading Russia experts, starting with George Kennan, who was the architect of America's Cold War containment strategy, said that the expansion of NATO was the biggest foreign policy mistake on the part of the United States since the end of the Cold War. He actually went so far as to say that the founding fathers are probably twisting their graves, given that mistake, which basically was made by Clinton. What I'm just telling you, Putin one said he wanted neutrality. And guess what? Finland, 
Sweden. Both are not NATO members. They're European Union members, but neither are NATO members because they don't want to piss off the Russians, which are the big neighbors, right? They want to be neutral, okay? Let me tell you something else. When Ukraine first became independent back in 1991, its constitution said that Ukraine is going to go for neutrality. It was not until only three years ago, until 2019, that Ukraine basically passed a constitution amendment sure. to make NATO membership the number one priority. Okay. Putin just wanted to get rid of that. Now, what's interesting to me is this. So Putin's been asking for this again and again for months. You know, Ukraine said no. Now, last week, okay, Zelensky came out and said, you know what? I will consider, you know, base neutrality. The question is, do you believe Zelensky, right? Is he sincere when he said that he's willing now to consider neutrality? If Zelensky were to agree to neutrality now, four weeks into the war, after his country has been completely destroyed, thousands of people being killed and millions have been displaced, if he were to basically accept neutrality, something he could have done three months ago, six months ago, a year ago, and prevented the war, if he does it now, how the hell is he going to explain this to himself and to his own people? I think that like he was under a bit of pressure, though, to further integrate Ukraine into the West. So I think that desire to leave the door open to Ukraine entering NATO was something that his people would have wanted him to defend adamantly. Except I'm telling you, by the time Putin's done with it, there's nothing left there. Now, I think Zelensky is not a dumb guy. So I don't want to assume that he's irrational. Okay. I think taking on Putin is like an ant taking on an elephant. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what that was, that's the size we're talking about, right? But this is the elephant's last stand, right? It, it could be. But I would say that Zelensky would never have taken on Russia if he didn't have some kind of encouragement from Washington. You understand, Ukraine, U.S. is Zelensky's biggest backer. Zelensky is fighting with American arms, American training, American money. You know, Zelensky is not his own man, believe me. He's being told by Washington, this is what you do. Now, the question is, why didn't Washington want Ukraine to have neutrality? I personally, this is where it gets very interesting. At this point, Given the extreme sanctions the U.S. has imposed on Russia over the last three weeks, by the way, I started my career in International Monetary Fund. I know a lot about economic sanctions. The sanctions the U.S. has imposed on Russia are so extreme, they're like completely unprecedented. Sure. They've never been applied to any country. You know, Russia invaded Georgia in 2008. They got barely like a slap on the wrist. 2014, yeah. Russia invaded basically Crimea. Ukraine. Nothing. Now, 2022, the sanctions the U.S. has imposed on Russia are designed to basically not only destroy the Russian economy, it's going to set back the Russian society by 20 years. Now, I'm asking myself, like, what, what is that all about? I personally think there's a bigger agenda here. And I could be wrong about this. Again, you got to think big picture, right? Why do the Americans want to do this, the Russians? I'll tell you, it's very simple. I saw what happened with Pentagon, what they did to basically Huawei. The way they went about killing Huawei is exactly the same way they're going about killing the Russian economy. I think this is about China. Because the U.S. has decided that China poses a massive threat to the U.S. global hegemony. 
Mm -hmm. And with Russia and China having signed strategic cooperation agreement last year, with both Russia and China recently tested the hypersonic missiles, which are three years ahead of the U.S. own development when it comes to these missiles, against which U.S. has no defense for. I personally think it will make a lot of sense for the U.S. to say, you know what, let's now take out Russia. Let's frame this a bit, because I think you're on to an interesting point, which is all roads lead to Beijing in terms of the way that the United States is looking at the global sphere. So if you look at the Western side versus China, it's really China and Russia as the biggest players on the East. And on the Western side, you have the US, Europe, Japan. Obviously, they have their own Asian allies that can be looked at as the West. And if you juxtapose gross domestic product with R&D, that Western group far outweighs the East, but the East has its own advantages, right? China definitely punches above its weight in terms of, I mean, just look at like human capital, right? The amount of researchers that are in China. I think if you add up the science and engineering undergrad degrees, it outstrips US, UK, France, Germany, Japan, South Korea. I mean, there's huge human capital there. But they don't really have that many friends, right? And so if you take out their one friend, which has an outsized control over one of the most important aspects of the economy, oil, I think about uh, 17% or something like that. Obviously, some countries in Europe rely far much more on Russian oil and natural gas. Germany is you know, near 50%, I believe. If you take out that ally to China, take out their economy, then China becomes weaker. That's the logic. Absolutely. So this is geopolitical, but how does this tie into markets and how does it tie into the potentiality of whether we go into recession? Because the only thing that matters for the market is how long will this war last? Is it going to be over in a week or is it going to keep going for another three more months? That's where it's going to basically matter. Now, let's think about this. Imagine we take, like last week, as I said, the stock market went through the roof because they think that while Zelensky is about to accept neutrality and this is going to basically end the war. Do you think that's even remotely possible? Because if Zelensky were to accept neutrality now after his country having been destroyed, this will completely discredit U.S. foreign policy, right? It would be like, a victory of Russia over Ukraine would be like victory of Russia over the United States. It will be as though that all the money resources the U.S. has been pouring into Ukraine the last eight years would have been for nothing. It would have been that, you know what, any country that wants to challenge the U.S. rule-based order can do so by just going in, aggressively take whatever they want, and the U.S. won't do anything about it. And that's scary for markets. Exactly. So what I'm just telling you is that there is no way Washington is going to agree for the war to end anytime soon. This is why I think it's going to happen. Putin is going to eventually go into Kiev. And Zelensky is not even going to be there. I'm not even sure Zelensky is still in Kiev. I think you're going to find the day that Russian troops march into Kiev, you're going to get an announcement that Zelensky is now in Poland with his entire government. Every basically member of Ukrainian parliament is now in Poland forming a basic government in exile, fully backed by the U.S. and Europe. Russia's now going to basically create a puppet government there. They're going to have to keep their troops in Ukraine at that point, which is going to get very expensive. And that's what's going to happen. 
This war is no longer about Russia's war against Ukraine. This has become America's war against Russia. America cannot make a U-turn without completely losing its credibility. By the way, do you know who is sitting on the fence? It's not just China that hasn't condemned Russia. It's South Africa, India, Saudi Arabia, sure. Brazil. All these countries came out this week criticizing the U.S. That's why this war now has become nationalism versus globalism. It's about the U.S. trying to send a message to someone who's trying to challenge the U.S. global domination. And everybody else around the table who wanted to basically also challenge wants to see how this play out. And this is the reason why this war will not end easily. That means the oil price is going to stay high. That means this war, the specter war, is going to continue. The supply negative shock. That's why I think the stock market is basically sleeping some pipe dream last week. It's basically smoking drugs to think that this war is going to be over anytime soon. Okay, so in a world where we continue to see the supply side shock of a war, the uncertainty of a transition from U.S. hegemony to a more multipolar world, the potential of Fed raising hikes could translate into recession. All of these things combined, a lot of uncertainty. A lot of it is new for Bitcoin. Bitcoin hasn't existed in this type of paradigm. How does it react? How does it move? I think there is a sort of like a transitional period versus the final period. I want to get to the final period first, equilibrium, because I think this is the most crucial part of the game. Like, remember if I told you before, two of the three most important factors that have created this incredible prosperity the last 30 years, one was the end of Cold War, okay, in 91, and the second was China's entry in the World Trade Organization. Both are now in serious jeopardy. And both of them, as they basically unwind, is inflationary. <laughs> inflationary because, for one thing, all the money that we haven't been spending on defense we now have to spend more money on defense. That means like less money going to something else, by the way. <laughs> okay. At the time, the already government budget deficit is massive. <laughs> Debt is going to go through the roof even more, right? So from that point of view, you could argue if companies are going to be afraid to invest in China because they say, oh, fuck, you know what? I never know I'm going to be able to outsource from China anymore. They'll have to basically build the factories in, in the U.S., which would be more expensive. Right. Yeah. I mean, by the way, it's interesting because they, it's not like doing the trade war under Trump. It was not like American factories are pouring into Mexico. Right. Sure. Because guess what? Like thirty five thousand people are gunned down every year in Mexico. It's not exactly the safest place <laughs> to go do business. And now you've got a socialist president there. Right. So it, there are not that many alternatives. So basically, if you don't want to basically make stuff in China, <laughs> that means higher prices. If you're going to basically spend more money on defense, that's higher prices which means high inflation, high interest rates. Now, higher debt. Now, you might say this is actually not necessarily a bad environment for Bitcoin, except there's one little problem. You have to ask yourself, first of all, like why hasn't the American government cracked down on Bitcoin until now, right? We've seen the Chinese crack down on Bitcoin, the Russians crack down on Bitcoin. Like, why have the U.S. done so, right? And I'll tell you one. The reason is it's political. There are two reasons. The main reason is because the government of the U.S. is sort of like they don't want to take the side of the banks because the banks represent the established mm. monopolies, the payment system, the dinosaurs. Sure. And then Bitcoin represents the new kid on the block that's going to basically make everything more efficient. Even if they think that crypto is a bit speculative, they're afraid 
to crack down too hard because they're going to be accused of basically being pro-Wall Street, right? No president, I don't tell you, like, even forget about Biden, like, basically Trump's relationship with Wall Street was like dismal. I mean, Wall Street hated him and hated Wall Street, right? But he also hated Bitcoin, too. Mnuchin hated Bitcoin, which is a different story. But we'll come back to that in a second. So until now, the Americans haven't cracked down. But that's going to change in this new equilibrium. I'm not saying, I don't know how long it's going to take us to get to the situation where we're going to be double-digit inflation, stagflation, that kind of environment, and bigger deficit. I'll tell you what that's going to be. Were you surprised that Biden announced two weeks ago that he now wants to commission a study on the central bank, basically cryptocurrencies? Why all of a sudden now? To me, it's pretty obvious. First of all, China just launched their CBCC, right? Sure. There's a big, com- there's a big competitive element there. It's a competitive. So all of a sudden, well, well, nobody wants China to get ahead. So America needs to basically show that the U.S. is not ready to surrender the dollar's reserve currency status, right, in this new struggle. Now, once you have a CBCC, do you not think the attitude towards Bitcoin is going to change completely? Because for one thing, right now you say, oh, wow, the cost of transfer is lower when you're using basically cryptocurrency. Guess what? When there's going to be CBCC, the cost of base transfer is going to be zero, (laughs) right? In fact, the government's a little bit worried because they, they're afraid of going to CBCC because they're afraid what this means for margins for Wall Street banks, right? Because they don't want to weaken the banks while they go into this thing. Sure. But there's no doubt this is what's going to happen. We're going to very soon get to that point that government's going to have no choice. Because if we go back to the 70s situation where they're printing money, whatever, they don't have enough money, you think that they're going to just encourage people to go into Bitcoin <laughs> and basically in some sense steal from them? At that point, they want to be able to get their hands on your money. By the way, CBCC, that's going to be the purpose because once you have CBCC, they're going to know every cent you have. <laughs> In fact, they're probably going to phase out cash at that point. They're going to say you don't need cash. Everything is going to be under government control. And at that point, they're going to crack down Bitcoin like mad. We all know that Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are vulnerable in one very specific way. They need oxygen provided to them by these Bitcoin exchanges, crypto exchanges, without which there is no Bitcoin market, right? It cannot really become a sort of person-to-person thing. Unless you live in a barter society, you own Bitcoin because you can buy, sell against the US dollar, the euro, whatever. They can destroy, they can close down the exchanges tomorrow if they want. I mean, just one step. It doesn't take any more than that, like the Chinese did, like the Russians did, so on and so forth. So my view is this. I think as we move towards this new equilibrium, I think the the most important story that we could be transitioning into is basically Cold War II. That's the honest truth. Cold War II that pits U.S. and allies against China and Russia on the other side. That's not going to be fun. Yeah. And your view is basically that as a means to advance or win in this Cold War 2.0 the U.S. or U.S. sort of government officials are going to move to crack down on Bitcoin, enhance their own CBDC in their efforts to take down the white whale, which is China. I just think that at least in the short to medium term, there's so much money being made in the space and so much advocacy happening that it could be politically, at least from a domestic perspective, fairly unpopular to shut down exchanges especially if you think about the amount of job creation that we see coming out of the exchanges or the amount of money 
I mean, I was talking with one crypto executive this past week about his meetings and ongoings with senators and congressmen, and they're coming to him with their hands out. And so I think just given the amount of political will behind crypto right now, it could be tough. I don't disagree. I think if crypto is trading at these levels, I think it's going to be okay. We're talking about if crypto gets bigger. And it will get bigger, by the way, because, you know, when inflation is going up, I think crypto can probably do okay in that environment. I expect gold probably do pretty well in that environment. Because at the end of the day, people are going to get desperate, I think, in that kind of environment. I'm just saying, like, in some sense, in a bad situation, crypto can do well. But in a very bad situation, I think crypto's it's going to do badly. <laughs> okay. Now, in the short term, however, this is about tech stocks, which is where it gets very interesting, right? Mm -hmm. Because honestly, if you had asked me about tech stocks, I would have said, well, you know, listen, you know, you said there's inflation coming, oil price going through. But you know what? Tech companies, they don't employ very many people. They certainly don't use a lot of gasoline, <laughs> right? And probably most tech employees drive EVs anyway. Sure. So you would tend to think that inflation is not such a big deal for tech company when it comes to their profit margin. The real issue for tech has really been the valuation. The valuation shock associated with higher interest rates have been a bigger problem for tech companies than the net impact from, from net margins, okay, from higher inflation, which is where it's going to get interesting. Well, if the cost to borrow is higher, I mean, that also impedes their own ability to sort of grow their business. But, you know, by Google, you know, these companies don't borrow anything, right? I mean, they have no debts. Apple has no debt. Mm -hmm. All these companies, they don't have any debt, right? You know, if you think about tech, tech ought to do pretty well in a high-inflation environment, relatively speaking, okay, given they don't have that much debt, given that their cost base is low, even if wages go up, it's not going to really hurt them because they don't even hire that many people. So the point here is this. I think that once tech's valuation compression has played out. You know, let's just say interest rate. I don't know what 10-year rates go. Let's go to 3%. Sure. At 3%, you're going to see basically tech valuation, you know, probably go down on 20%, whatever it's going to be. And that will be when you start to buy tech. And that's when Bitcoin will probably come alive again. Relatively speaking, tech will do better than other companies in the kind of environment I'm basically spelling out for lots of different reasons. Not least of all, because, you know, if there's going to be inflation, then people are going to see even more automation. And then automation means more tech and not less tech. Okay. If you're not going to outsource to China, then you're going to basically do it in the US and you're going to basically invest in robots, whatever it is, and you're going to basically need more sensors and whatnot. My point here is that tech is still probably where you want to be. But just right now, I think what we saw in 2000, 2001 after the Nasdaq bubble dropped, it took two years, mm -hmm. two and a half years before we reached basically the bottom. If you have, and I think so, it could take a long time. I'm not saying that, you know, you go buy, go buy tech tomorrow. But I think, you know, if tech were to go down 20%, 30%, I think then it becomes really, really interesting. It doesn't feel like we're at full capitulation. No, it definitely does not. Isn't that weird, though? Because, like, so many things have drawn down, like, 70 80%. Most are down 50 but for some reason, it doesn't feel like we're in calamity. Because given how much they went up, right? Because of how much they went up. Right. So from that point of view, like, you know, if something went up 300%, it goes down 50, you're still up basically 150%, you know, and, and that's where the issue is, right? I'll give you an example. Last year, 
$25 billion came into the Israeli VC, into startups, right? Because Israel is like the second biggest startup play after Silicon Valley, right? $25 billion. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, this, this year, Israel will be lucky to get $5 billion of inflows. That's what we're talking about. And that's because right now, all the startups are very reluctant to take down their prices, their valuation, because there hasn't been this capitulation, as you said, <laughs> right? Yeah. So that is where the issue is. There's a lot of dead money in the system right now. Okay, and it will take time for this to get digested and play out. On the crypto side, I mean, we're not really seeing venture flows slow down to any extent. The valuations are still pretty stubbornly high. And I've even seen headlines of VCs borrowing so that they can get in on some of these deals at these higher valuations. Exactly. Which to me is actually funny because the biggest driver of Bitcoin, we just said, it's Nasdaq 100, <laughs> you know? So from that point of view, like, you know, it's difficult to divorce because the honest truth is the people who invest in Bitcoins, they also invest in tech stocks. They're the millennials, basically. So if they're losing money on tech, they're going to not be pouring money into basically Bitcoin. They're going to be poor as a result. This is why you're getting that correlation. And that correlation is the most powerful correlation right now Nobody wants to admit it because everybody say, oh, well, Bitcoin is a safe haven. And, and yeah, you look at what's happened in the last basically few weeks. Bitcoin has had like a negative correlation with gold. Gold goes up, Bitcoin goes down, gold goes down, and basically Bitcoin goes up. It's pretty amazing. It doesn't trade like this macro safe haven that most people want to believe it is. Yeah. I think like there's an interesting, unique narrative here, which is similar to the Internet. This is a new growth opportunity for venture investors, right? And so even if the retail folks pull back because of the same reasons they're pulling back from tech names, there's still going to be that final bid from these large institutions that have raised billions of dollars on the venture side from A16Z to Paradigm, et cetera. They're going to be there pumping the bag in a way that maybe the tech side of the market doesn't have those bidders coming in or that sort of like final person to, you know, save our bags. Right. No, it's possible. You're, you're right. I mean, you know, there's been a lot of, a lot of assets being gathered to go invest in crypto. I mean, because, you know, crypto did so well in the last two years that institution investors, they're running behind the, uh, the train. Mm-hmm. But I do think that right now, given the increase of volatility, given this war. So in some sense, what I'm saying is that this war in Ukraine, it's about as bad as it gets crypto because war is a good reason for everybody to sit on their hands to wait it out play out and i'm just telling you that as much as wall street now thinks that the war is is going to end very soon i think this thing is going to drag on much longer because this is just a dress rehearsal for basically cold war two well in six months we'll have you back on to either tell you that you were right or tell you that you were very wrong um, we shall see. Please invite me back, especially if I'm really wrong, because I'm one of these people, if I'm wrong, I want to do a public mea culpa. And I want to also then tell you why I'm wrong. And I think we can accommodate that. David, thanks so much for being on the show and stopping by to chat with us today. Once again, we've been joined today by our guest, David Wu of David Wu Unbound. David, where can our listeners, if they've enjoyed the conversation, learn more about you and what you're working on? 
first of all, I have a free YouTube channel. Check it out. David One Bound, free YouTube. And then if you know if you get hooked, you might want to subscribe to my blog or check out my free YouTube first. You know what? Don't believe anybody says until you basically follow them for a while to see if their track record is any good. Amen. Words to live by. The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an amazing day.